Let's get and open up to uh, Isaiah 40, beloved. And we're going to start in verse 12. And um, this is one of the most, I think, encouraging um, texts, one of the most encouraging texts in Isaiah so far. This is just remarkable. And so let's read it together and then we'll pray and, and, uh, and we'll get into this text. Let's look at it. Starting in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? And closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket." And are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the heavens, creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk. And not faint. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would take these wondrous words penned by Isaiah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Father, you'd bring them home to our hearts tonight. Father, there's no amount of words that I can speak that will do that. Lord, it's only possible by the work of your Spirit in our hearts. By you laying hold of us and making us to hear and receive this word in the way that we should. And so, Lord God, I pray that you would be at work in our midst. Like Samuel, as a child, we say, Lord, come and speak for your servant hears. 
We want to know, Lord God, your word, and we want to know you through it. So I pray, Father, that you would bless this time immensely. I pray that, Father, you would unfold these ancient words, yet relevant words to our hearts. And, Father, we would be grateful for having heard them. I pray that you'd help us to to see things through the right perspective. Father, it's so easy for us to be overwhelmed by so much around us that seems so imposing. And yet when we view it through in, in light of your greatness and your glory and we view it through the lens of Scripture, we realize that even the most extreme of sufferings in this earth and trials and hardships and difficulties and problems, Lord God, they pale in comparison to the greatness of your glory. So I pray, Lord, that you would indeed strengthen us tonight by your word that you would give strength to our souls, that, Father God, you would bless us with your presence and and, and that you would indeed make us to run and not grow weary and walk and not be faint. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. A.W. Tozer um, wrote in the preface to his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, these words. I think he's right on. He said, The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking and worshiping men. This she has not done deliberately, but little by little, and without her knowledge, and her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. I think Tozer's right. God does not hold the place of supremacy and of reverent awe and of majestic might and holy fear in the whole of the professing church as he once did. I think the reason for that is because the, the, the appetite for God's holy word has waned significantly in our culture. And it's waned significantly in the church. And there's absolutely no way that you can be amazed and astonished by God if you are not invested in, in reading and feasting upon and and delighting in his holy word. And the very fact that, that, that Tozer says this, you know, I, I think is proved, I, I think it's absolutely proven by the low state of the spiritual lives of professing Christians in our church. That's the sad result. And so, the reason I chose that quote is because it stands as a proper background to sort of the, word, the backdrop to the words that we're going to be studying tonight. Judah, remember, as Israel before her had surrendered her once lofty concept of God through gradual but steady syncretism, right? And, and with the religious beliefs of the nations around her, compromising and conceding the, the singular glory of God, blindly stumbling into idolatry, boldly transgressing the commandments of God, refusing to repent, or at least have any real repentance that was lasting, um, and instead doubling down on some of the most horrific sins imaginable. And so the judgment that God brought upon Judah in the exile, the Babylonian exile, the, the destruction of their land, the demolition of the temple, their hard labor in Babylon was absolutely just and right. It was right and good that God should do that, right? But as we read last week, praise God, He does not abandon His purpose, nor does He abandon His people, right? It is God's eternal purpose that His Son would be born of the tribe of Judah that he would come to the nation of Israel, that he would be rejected by his own people, that he would be crucified, right, to bear the sins of the elect from all the nations, that he would rise victorious on the third day, ascend to the right hand of the Father, and return from heaven to receive his own and to judge his enemies, right? Mm -hmm. 
The salvation of souls is completely tied up in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth to accomplish His redemptive purpose, correct? And as John tells us, He was in this world and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. For salvation to be accomplished... Christ must come, right? He must come from the tribe of Judah. And if that's going to take place, then the Jews must be freed from their Babylonian captivity and a remnant must return to the promised land and they must rebuild the nation, right? And so last week in Isaiah's overview, he lays out this great great promise, this grand promise of God for the future of the remnant and their rescue and their return from Babylonian captivity. It has to take place. But the question then is this, as a result of the nation's surrender of their lofty concept of God, the question would be, can Yahweh truly accomplish this great act? Can God really do this? Is he really able to do all the things that he's promising through Isaiah? And verses 12 through 31 Beloved, are Isaiah's partial answer to that question. Now, I say partial because Isaiah is going to elaborate on the supremacy of God for several chapters in a row. Okay, but but it's his partial answer. He presents this divinely inspired, accurate picture of the sovereign creator, the true and the living God. And it is wondrous and it is amazing. In fact, I want you to see the way that he does this or, or just point out the way he does this. He uses a series of questions that are designed to display the exceeding glory and matchless majesty of Yahweh. Some of them are rhetorical. Like you read them and the answer is obvious. And then others, he answers, Isaiah answers himself. But his intention here is to exalt the supremacy of God. It's to magnify the infinite superiority of God to all idols. It's to lift up His infinite power and wisdom and His might as creator and His sovereign rule over everything. And especially the lives of these remnants that are in Babylonian captivity, right? Again, they're off in the future. Isaiah is writing to them. They're going to receive this message in the future when they are in, in Babylon. But the point of this text is to turn the eyes of the remnant. Okay? The remnant that's going to return. And I want you to think about that for a moment. At this time, you know, or at, the, at the present time in Babylon, that would have been kind of a mixed group. You would have had some that were strong in their faith. You would have had some that maybe were lagging and, and weaker in their faith. And you would have had some that needed to come to faith. They needed to be saved, right? And so the whole idea is to turn the eyes of the remnant to God's intrinsic glory and then produce faith. And obedience, right, to that Lord. And so, in the first series of questions, Isaiah means for us to see that, first of all, Yahweh is in a class by himself. He's in a class by himself, right? He, start, he records, starting in verse 12, look at this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Now, the obvious answer to that question is what? Nobody but God, right? That's the obvious question, but I want you to, or the obvious answer, but I want you to take note of the way that Isaiah crafts this question, these questions, because it's masterful, okay? 
Isaiah presents this breathtaking picture of Yahweh creating the universe as effortlessly as a skilled craftsman would create something on his workbench, right? I mean, that's the picture here. He uses words that we associate with precision work, right? Measured, marked off. That means precision tuning. Held, weighed, right? These are all words that that we use to describe precision work. And then he uses words to describe work that is on a small scale. He uses the hollow of the hand and the span. That was the distance between the thumb and the forefinger of a, of a stretched out hand. Then he uses, you know, the, the idea of, of scales and balances. And he uses these small measures, but he associates them with the waters and the heavens and the dust of the earth and the mountains and the hills. Now, why does he do that? It's for this purpose. It's so to emphasize the immensity and the might of the Lord, the ease with which he's created a universe that we don't fully understand, right? And of which we have never taken the full measure. And if that is so of the universe, how much more is it so of the one who made it all, right? He means to to shock them. Just think about like, look at all this. and, And to God, all of this, the entire universe, the created universe is like, Look, it just it's in his hand. Not that God is a great big man. It's anthropomorphic you know, language here. But the idea is to emphasize his immensity and his, and his glory, right? His power in creation. And then moving from this might, the might of God in creation, Isaiah then turns to his wisdom in verses 13 and 14. Look at it. Again, he puts all this in a form of questions. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Again, the answer to that is what? Nobody. Nobody has taken the measure of God's mind or spirit, right? Remember Paul talking about this at the end of of Romans chapter 11, right? Nobody's taken the measure of God's mind or spirit. Nobody can understand in fullness his ways and his wisdom. No one took counsel with God, sat down with God and said, all right, God, let's, I'm going to help you overcome your difficulties and your conundrums. I mean, it has none, right? I mean, to even think that is, is, is ludicrous, right? That's the point. That's the point, right? He didn't learn from anyone the right way to do things, which is the idea of the word here, justice. He didn't need to glean from, any, from anybody, any, anybody else any knowledge, right? God can't learn anything. He can't learn anything because he knows all things. He doesn't need a teacher. He doesn't need a counselor. God doesn't need help. Now, there are some implications that immediately come from this when you think about it. First, the first thing that's obvious is that that God is one in essence. In other words, there's no pantheon of lesser gods. Okay, There's no demigods. There's no council of the gods as existed in many of the Mesopotamian you know, religions. There is God, right? Second, everything God does is by his own design and counsel. And what he does and what he continues to do is not only beyond our ability, right? But it's also far beyond our comprehension. And then the third thing is this, is that that's true not only of creation, right? but of the redemption of his people. 
the God who created all things, who did it all according to his own might and all according to his own wisdom, can certainly deal with his people according to his sovereign power and will and save them according to his purpose. Correct? Nothing can derail the wisdom and the power of God. That's the whole point. The first thing you should come away with in these first three few verses is that, you know, any human attempt to curtail the actions of God or add to the actions of God or improve the actions of God or improve his wisdom, or anything, it's all worthless. It's a waste of time because God is supreme in his might and he's supreme in his wisdom and he can't be added to, right? And that's made clear even more by Isaiah's following statements in verses 15 and 16. Look at it. He says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust of the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. What's he saying? Well, what about the might of the nations? What about a nation like Babylon or, or Syria before it? Or Egypt before it? Or indeed any nation that has arisen in human history, including our own, that seems to be so impressive in their human glory and, their, and so earth-shaking in their power. What about the power of the nations, the power of mankind? And Isaiah's answer is, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're like a drop from a bucket. The idea here is the picture of a drop from a bucket that's been cast into a well in order to retrieve water, right? That drop that's lost. Does the person drawing the water even miss it? Do they? Were they not, are they like, wow, that's significant. That one drop, that's, that, I feel that. I feel that that's missing from the bucket. It's going to be an easier trip back to the house than I thought. Of course not. They don't miss it. It's insignificant. And to God, the coastlands, right? The, the, I love this. The coastlands, okay? That's a, that's a metaphor for the ends of the earth and everything that's included in it. Okay, that's what coastlands is. The coastlands are like fine dust in his hands. In other words, he doesn't even feel it. it it's, I mean, it's not, even, it, it, it's not even appreciable, right? They have as much weight as, as, as fine dust on a scale. They're insignificant in the big picture. In other words, the nations don't tilt the balance of power from Yahweh in one bit. In fact, the truth is this. And this is so cool. So great is the Lord God, so awesome in his person, so awesome in his might and his power and his wisdom and his glory. So great is he, so awesome in his majesty that even if all of the vaunted forest of Lebanon, you remember Lebanon was like, was the forest, right? I mean, that was the one where you got all the timbers from to build the temple and all that other stuff. I mean, it was it. Even if you were to take all of the all of the trees of the vaunted forest of Lebanon, and they were to be burned as fuel, and all the beasts of his forest were to be offered as a sacrifice, even such a great burnt offering would not even begin to measure up with the greatness of God. It would be an act of worship, perhaps. But it would not at all be in keeping with his glory. In fact, Alec Motyer says of this picture of, of worship and sacrifice here at the end, he says, Nothing we can do puts him at our debt or disposal. This is the death knell to all do-it-yourself systems of salvation. Over every human effort to move God, to meet his standards, satisfy his requirements, maneuver him to our advantage, and climb into his good books, Isaiah simply writes, not enough. It's not enough. 
There's no way that fallen man can provide for God the worship or the sacrifice which he deserves. So what does that mean for us? It means this. It means that if God is going to be satisfied as it regards the sins of man, he himself will have to provide the means, which he, of course, does. Then Isaiah gives this summation in verse 17. Look at it. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Now, some guys have taken that verse and taken it out of context and been like, God doesn't care about anybody. Right? No, I've actually heard, I've actually, no, he didn't say it just like that. But, but I've heard a preacher kind of make that point. Look, it's important to understand what Isaiah is saying here. It's not that God has no concern for the nations, right? If that were the case, right, then, then why would he send forth his apostles, his preachers, his teachers to go and evangelize the nations so that the elect might be saved, right? It's not that God has no concern at all. He wouldn't have sent his son to save people from from all the nations. You know, that's evidence to the contrary, okay? It's not that God just doesn't care about people or is uncaring and disinterested toward people that are made in the divine image. Isaiah is not assessing the value of humanity to God here. Rather, he's assessing their comparative stature. Okay, that's what's going on. Standing before God, humanity's collective strength and wisdom is nothing. It's bupkis. It's zero, right? They're a non-entity. A nothing. A void. God alone possesses true authority. He alone possesses true might and true wisdom and true life. Apart from God, humanity is without life, spiritual life, therefore without meaning, without purpose, and without wisdom. The point here is that without God, humanity is nothing. You see that? Charles Spurgeon said, There are no measures which can be set forth, which can set forth the immeasurable greatness of Yahweh. Notes of exclamation suit us when words of explanation are of no avail. If we cannot measure, we can marvel. And though we may not calculate with accuracy, we can adore with fervency. Look, when we when we read these first, you know, what, six verses, 12 through 17, when we read those, we come to a quick realization that we cannot possibly know all there is to know about God, right? In fact, as Paul writes, he is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That's First Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Now because that's true, it really only highlights the next thing I want us to see, which is the tragic irony of idolatry. Look at this. Isaiah says in verses 18 through 20, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol. A craftsman crafts it. And a goldsmith overlays it with wood and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that, won't rot, that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Now here's the deal. Isaiah is just getting started on the foolishness and stupidity of idolatry. Okay? But... I mean, he's going to have a lot to say over the next few chapters, but what he says here amplifies the absolute ignorance of idolatry. How absolutely foolish it is, okay? Now think about it. He has just described for us the way that God is in a class by himself, right? 
And now he says, so that God that's in a class by himself, you're going to make an idol that represents him? Right? I mean, it's, 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 it's foolishness. God's incomparable, is incomparable. And so, is man going to be foolish enough to create an idol and worship it as God? Answer? Yes. Yeah. I mean, here's why. Here's why, beloved. Apart from receiving God's revelation of himself, apart from receiving the truth about God from his word and honoring him as such, mankind is, is, is confined, okay? Inescapably confined to his own thoughts, to his own presuppositions and his own imaginations and his own concoctions, right? Which always leads to a massively lesser and immensely lower view of the God who is as evidenced by idolatry, right? John Calvin said the human heart is a factory of idols. He was right. Think about this. An idol is the creation of what? Human hands. Whether it's gold or wood, whether you're rich or you're poor, whether you can afford the gold one or you got to settle for the wooden one, right? They're made from earthly material which God called into existence. They're just the product of human skill and human crafting. And so man makes this idol by his own hands, something that he knows does not have life and power self-existent or he wouldn't have had to make it, right? He then, you know, makes this idol that's got to be fitted with chains. And why does he mention that? It's because those chains would be affixed to the wall, okay? Or it needs to be placed or fastened to a base, okay? That set up means to stick on a base, okay? Why? So that your imaginary God doesn't fall over on its face. That's why. It would be, you know... A bad omen if the God that you created toppled over on its face, right? I mean, it's all ridiculous. Trusting in idols, whatever they may be, it's worthless. They're nothing more than things made by God's materials, invested with imaginary power that only God truly has, and made by men who are themselves created by God. Talk about a bad copy of a bad copy of a bad copy of a bad copy, right? This is like the... the, the the, what do you call those things? What is that? Yeah, for like the uh, copy machine, whatever. Like, that's like the, that's like taking and making a copy. You know, like when you take and make like 30 copy, the 30th copy, like, you, you follow what I'm saying? This, this, all right, thanks. The succession of your smart people. You get it. Now, here's what John Calvin said about this. He said that these were, with these words, Isaiah ridiculed the stupidity and badness of those who reduce God to sticks and metal. Right on. And then having done so, right, Isaiah then goes on to declare Yahweh's mastery over kings and over constellations. Look at this. This is great. In this next series of questions, Isaiah points them back to what they should already know. Look how he starts this in verse 21. He says, do you not know? And the, the emphasis there is you should know this. Do you not hear? Are you hearing me? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Now, here's what he's saying. Look, the implication is that what he's going to say after these questions, that, that it's not going to be some new revelation to them. They're not going to sit there and go, we never heard that before. That's, that's not it. It's not going to be some kind of hidden truth that Isaiah is pulling out for them. These are the things 
The things that he's going to talk about, these are the things that made up the nation's once lofty concept of God. Things that they already had known and reckoned to be true that was the basis for their faith, but which they had forgotten. There are things that God made known about himself from the beginning. What they'd been taught about God. What this really is, is a, it's kind of a gentle, maybe semi-gentle chiding to remember the majesty and the glory of God. Well, what should they know already? Look what he says. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. What's he saying? Well, the phrase there sits above the circle of the earth is a phrase that's used to indicate the Lord's transcendence. His transcendent supremacy over the earth. And not merely just a part of it. Not, not just merely some region like the local gods that the, the Mesopotamians believed in. But the idea is God is enthroned upon the pinnacle of the world. And from that vantage point, the people of the earth with their often monumental egos and personal assessments that are not in line with reality, from that perspective, they are small indeed. They are like grasshoppers. Now, why didn't he pick ants? Why, why didn't he pick, you know, they are like bull weevils. Why doesn't he say they are like, you know, whatever? Probably the reason is this, is because the word for circle and the word for grasshopper sounds similar in, in, in Hebrew. And so probably for the, for the, for the effect of assonance, he, he picks that. But anyways, point is, by God's power, he stretches out the heavens like a tent. And, and all of creation inhabits it. The idea is that the heavens are like a canopy and God's got everything up under his tent and it's all up under his direction and his authority. But it's just a tent is the idea. It's just a canopy. Indeed, the heavens are to the true God like saran wrap is to steel. And one day, he's going to rip that canopy away to reveal himself in all of his splendor and in all of his majesty. And every creature on earth will have no excuse. Not that they have one now, but every possible excuse will be taken away. He's the ruler of the universe. And as for the rulers of the earth, the princes, their days and their authority, they're just given to them by God. You know, they're given. God is sovereign over every political leader who rules and governs. Compared to them, to him, I mean, they're nothing. God can raise them up. He can blow them away. He can plant them in their office. They can seem to be stable and then make them wither and blow away like the stubble. Oh, that he would do that with this current administration. No kingdom is eternal, right? Except his. And no king is forever except him. And he alone. And that's the point here. And he's not just making some empty claim. God's authority over everything is proven by his authority over the heavens. Look what he says in verses 25 and 26. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Through Isaiah... <laughs> 
God directly challenges his people. Go find somebody who's equal to me. Go. Go look and examine the entire world. Find someone that is equal to me. Find somebody that is like the Holy One. Obviously, any efforts are going to be what? Futile. Now, certainly that word holy, uses, he, he, you know, he uses that, that name for God, Holy One. And certainly the, the word holy describes the otherness of God, which sets him apart from all of his creatures. But this holiness also describes his essential character as well, right? Like the one who is morally perfect who has the the burning purity of righteousness. And the point is, there's a demanding moral element to living in Yahweh's world. And you need to realize that. And again, there's simply no one like Him. He transcends all of His creatures, earthly and heavenly. He points them to the host of heaven, right? Let's look at the stars, the heavenly bodies, right? How did they come to be? They're not just there. You know, it's not just, they didn't just show up. They were called into existence by God, right? They've, not only that, they've been numbered and they've been named. And by the greatness of God's might and of His power, not one of them is missing. We don't go out in the morning and we're like, hey, where'd the sun go? Right? None of them is missing. They're not self-existent like the evolutionist foolishly claims. They're dependent creatures who come and go at the command of the Lord, who do what they do at the command of the Lord, like a sheep does with a shepherd, or like soldiers before a general, or like dogs, good dogs, before their master. Right? (laughs) Yahweh's power and wisdom, His, His greatness, His deity, His holiness, His transcendence, it places Him beyond all comparison. Now, if Isaiah stopped there, we would, we would think, wow, God is awesome. But he is a God far off, right? Like what, what hope can we derive in a God who's far off? He's just far off. He's awesome. He's glorious. He's majestic in his power. He's awesome in his wisdom. But, but he's a transcendent God who sits on the circle of the earth, right? But Isaiah makes it clear that he's not merely a God who's far off, but a God who intimately relates to his people. And we see that in this last section. As Isaiah describes Yahweh's passion and his power for his people. Look at it first in verses 27 and 28. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? Oh, the Lord doesn't know what's going on with me. He has no idea of the suffering that, that, I'm, that I'm enduring. He has no idea of the predicament that I am in, right? And my right is discarded by my God. He's not bringing justice, He's not acting on my behalf. Have you not known? Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. In other words, here's what Isaiah is saying to them in essence. In light of everything that I've just said to you, everything I've just described to you about God, how can you believe that this God, this glorious, majestic God, does not see or know your situation and your condition. Don't you understand? Don't you get it? You may not understand how He is working. He doesn't work on our timetable. He doesn't even work necessarily in ways that we fully understand. But God is at work. And you can depend upon Him. Because He is the everlasting God. In other words, there's no time when He is not. 
He does not falter or fail, right? He's the creator of the ends of the earth, and there's no place where he is not. He doesn't grow weary. He works everything according to his wisdom. His wisdom is beyond finding out. Your job is to believe. How foolish to fail to believe in such a God. That's the point. He continues by saying this. Look, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. He's not just a God far off. He's the God who gives strength to His people, who gives might to the weak, and to those who cannot endure in their own strength. And that's the point. None of us can. Even the young with their seemingly endless fount of energy, ultimately fail and falter, don't they? That's the only reason why parents of young children get sleep at night. Strength, human strength, fades, right? It always does. Human life is frail and it's transitory. That's the point. But those who wait for the Lord... Wait for the Lord. I love that phrase. It's a great phrase. It means, it describes the one who has complete dependence upon God and a willingness to accept His terms. It describes someone who ceases from frantically trying to save himself or deliver himself and who turns expectantly to God. It refers to somebody who has a a confident expectation and who patiently waits upon the Lord. Not indifferently, not just like, well, whatever will be with me, but with an eager faith. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. And the idea here is that they will receive fresh strength from the Lord. It's a different kind of strength. The divine strength that God gives to His own. Matyar describes it like this. He says, it's a different strength as if people become eagles. A strength brought about by transformation. It is divine strength. A strength like the Lord's own that does not weary or faint. It makes one to run in the exceptional demands of life. And it makes them to walk in the ordinary daily grind. That's a great understanding. Yahweh saves. He saves by the Lord Jesus Christ. He strengthens, he preserves, and he ensures that his people persevere. Now, for the the people that were immediately receiving this, right? It would have been the Babylonians. Here they are. They're immediately receiving this. This would have been to them an encouragement and an instruction to prepare their hearts, to prepare their attitudes, and to ready themselves for the moment when God's promise would come to fruition when Cyrus the Persian, having conquered Babylon, would set the Jews free and then to step out and to return to the promised land to do in accordance with what God promised he would do. They believed his rescue is coming. They waited for it. They knew it would happen. They just didn't know exactly when. But they were to be ready. And likewise... 
believers living now at the end of the age, right? With the expectation of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need that same confidence. The hope for the coming of Christ doesn't imply that there's a chance that it might not happen. Rather, it implies an active and a readying faith in the truth of His coming. It's going to happen. We're expecting it. I'm hoping it soon. And those who wait on the Lord will not be entangled by this life. They'll be focused on the spiritual preparation for His appearance, right? Remember what the Apostle John said, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be is not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. As we live out our faith in light of this hope, we'll find our strength renewed even as it seems. The world is falling apart around us. It's going to. But God, our God, remains unmoved, unchangeable, and perfect. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for these words. We're thankful, Father, for this This opening up of your scripture to our understanding, to behold you, Father, in the greatness and the majesty of of your person, to see the triune God, Lord, as you are. How amazed, how astonished, how much we realize that as perfect as these words are, you are yet beyond full explanation, and you will be forever. And that's not a source of fear in us. It's a gladness. Because if you were a God whom we could understand completely and fully, you'd cease to be God and we'd be your peers. And we're not. So thank you, Lord, for this revelation of your, of your, of your sovereign lordship as creator. Your majesty over all the nations and over all of nature. Your, Father, just power over kings and constellations and that you cannot, you cannot be in any way represented even by the most exquisite idol that any of us could make. Lord, you are great. And I pray that you would continue to reveal your greatness to us over and over as we seek your face. Thank you for this time tonight. I pray these words, Lord, would be encouraging to our souls. I pray they'd be edifying to our hearts and our minds. And I pray, Father God, that they would capture our will, that we might desire to live in such a way that pleases and exalts you above all others. I pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.